Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 17th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. I was going to say something about National Estate Planning Awareness Week, and it's not about attorneys. It's about, you know, you taking agency with your end. There's lots of pointers, and I got it on some bulletin, but no, I don't want to open that up. What I really want to do is go back to what I raised last week, and I'm adding to the point. Folks, it's the World Series for misinformation and disinformation. I'm finding so many tripwires for people assuming what they've just read, what they've just seen is the actual truth, and it is far from it, and it's making you feel the way you feel, utterly crappy. That's the FCC cleared word I'm using. So misinformation, disinformation, the more skeptical you are, the better off you are, And I might add as well, the more you listen, the more you learn. That's my PSA about the world we're in. Now, for the show, my guest for the full hour is UCI anthropology professor and award-winning author, filmmaker, and playwright, Roxanne Varzi. She's rolling out a whole new creative enterprise, the Armchair Anthropology Whodunit series, Death in a nutshell, A Murder Mystery is the first book in this project. She's whipped up this genre. It's offering another way for her, us, to examine and interpret anthropologists' assumptions and roles in the study of humans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Returning to the program is my guest for the full hour, Roxanne Barzi. She is an award-winning author, filmmaker, playwright, Fulbright scholar, and full professor of anthropology and visual studies here at UCI, using the intimate reference to this campus, UC Irvine for people that are listening worldwide. Roxanne is as well a self-proclaimed dyslexia disruptor. I would add a disruptor of linear thinking. Her short stories have been anthologized in three collections of Iranian-American writing. Her essays have appeared in London Review of Books, the Detroit Press, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, and Le Monde Diplomatique. She is author of Warring Souls, Media, Martyrdom, and Youth, and Independent Publishers Award, Gold Medal, Last Seen Underground, an ethnographic novel of Iran, and uh, her dramatic work includes the film Plastic Flowers Never Die, The Whole World Blind, a sound performance, Tehran Tourist, Salt and Sublime, and Act One to the End. There's different titles, uh, Act One to the End, Ask the Ayatollah. So some of these titles have changed, and uh, just every uh, lots of these academics have different sorts of postings and platforms where their bios are, so I, I will own that the, maybe another title is still there. The subject of today's interview is her latest book. In a, This is in the series known as the Armchair Anthropology Whodunit Series with the first book to launch this project entitled Death in a Nutshell. 
It's another spoiler-free show, folks. My contract with listeners and guests, that's the way it is. All I'm going to do is volunteer that Death in a Nutshell is, quote, an engaging read for adventurous mystery lovers peppered with a little anthropology. And she gives a little bit way a little bit more than I would on her website so uh, I leave it at that because this is going to be one hour's worth of a teaser for you to pick up the book she joins me in studio which I repeat is always a pleasure to have folks with me welcome back to ask a leader Roxanne Varzi hey Claudia thanks for having me back it's great to be in the studio it is another delight well first we're going to put you through lots and lots and lots of hoops the <laughs> anthropology even defining it Ooh. is a bit of a landmine. And I, I looked up an old uh, Merriam's Web, uh, Webster dictionary. It's probably maybe about 30, 35 year old, just to see what they'd say. I, if I were to go online, it would go on and on and on. So I want to know what definition you use, uh -huh. including as you ref you give a, a, lots of references to explain cultural, physical, and paleoanthropologists, but what's your definition? Oh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> you started off with a hard one right off the bat. Well, we have to know because <laughs> that's the whole idea, right? Well, I think I think the reason it's a hard one is because it's different depending on where you're trained. It's different depending on how you produce your work. Um, I'm a social cultural anthropologist, so I do participant observation. It can be anywhere, and I write this in one of the field notes in, in the book. You can work on communities online. You can go far away and, and do something with a very small community somewhere. Um, anthropology is about being inquisitive about a culture and a place or a phenomenon that you don't know about, that you want to write about, research, and then tell other people about. Does that help? And you, okay, <laughs> um, no, that's, that's the start, that's the start. So the book alternates between storyline along with field notes, which you just referred to, which does some interesting things for the reader. We're immersed in a story unfolding in Bozeman, Montana. Yes, sirree, folks. <laughs> then we step back and we slip into the armchair of the anthropologist for a look at the discipline and the author's mind. And it's it has, when I say author's mind, I, I just think I know who that is. I think there's a there's partly a sort of an your own uh, autobiographical notes. So along with a, a whodunit, we have a who would have thought <laughs> going on in here between those two. So I'm going to roll out a whole lot of themes. I'm hoping we can cover practically all of them. And I want would like to flesh out with you what I, I want to start with is that, and you're talking about that in your definition of anthropology is there's scrutiny. That's the, the act of what the anthropologist is doing with the subjects and objects. And then there's surveillance. And I, I've just had this constant feeling, an eerie feeling of I'm being surveilled or you're, we're surveilling the anthropologist, thinking out loud, we're survey the, the characters are being surveilled and they, they're very unclear about that. And they're surveilling each other. So that, how conscious of you are you of the, scrutiny and the surveilling kind of intertwining sorts of processes? Oh, that's a great question. Very conscious. And I think my character feels very uncomfortable with her role of going in and... Well, she's uncomfortable as a... She's not <laughs> yet completed her dissertation. She completed so her she's dissertation. so vulnerable, so fragile. She is. So she's kind of the perfect character to 
unravel the, the, the difficulties and some of the ethical issues and, and, and just some of the methodological, um, you know, you called it minefields, I think, <laughs> at one point in terms of doing field research. And, you know, I started writing the book as a murder mystery for fun. And, and then at the same time, I had wanted to do some kind of curriculum series. And then somehow, partially because of the publisher I was thinking about going with initially, I decided to put the two together. And it works really well because I think detectives and anthropologists do a lot of the same kind of work. But detectives are looking at a life after the life has passed away. So in some ways, it's, it's a little bit different and easier. In other ways, it's more difficult because you don't have the same kinds of permissions and people are more on guard. Um, but I, I think there's a nice parallel there between a detective and an anthropologist. Okay. And we, we can keep threading with that. So then another tool and a theme is stereotype, which everybody, we all think we know what it is, but you go to the phenomenological sort of background. It's a, a form of the, this you break down and refer to several times. It's really, really useful. And then I want to sort of bring up stereotype and then through semantics that are, are just so heavily frayed. But so can you, we're not, this is no spoiler here, how Roxanne defines what stereotype is. And it's, it's very useful in how, especially now where we're profiling, we're biased, it's, there is an automatic process of stereotyping and profiling. We do that as a, as a sort of protective mechanism, but it's also a pernicious process. So talk about the meaning of stereotype, phenomenologically, breaking it all down. Well, I think, I, I think the biggest problem um, that we have in the world when it comes to this is not treating individuals as individuals. And people are so complex. We aren't, um, we aren't our ethnic background. We aren't our ability or disability. We aren't where we were born, um, you know. So I think the work of a novelist, is, as much as the work of an anthropologist, is to really sort of break down all of these things to create a picture of a person or a character or a people that's way more complex than this sort of um, flat image that we get, which is where the whole notion of stereotype comes from, right? It comes from, you know, the, the visual um, replication of an image, um, and I think, and the uh, the phenomenological part I'm going to get, get that you explained is the stereo. We're we're getting we think with our bringing in two different views into the right. one image that right. it's really it's still a very uh, inexact take. Exactly, exactly. And I think um, you know I'm also one of the things that's really important to me, and it's National Dyslexia Awareness Month and National ADHD Awareness Month. One of the things that's really important to me in this book is I have a dyslexic protagonist, a person with dyslexia, and that is an area that has been so stereotyped, and it has been um, people have been so pigeonholed, and it's it's so utterly different from person to person and how it plays out. So I'm I'm playing around with with that as well and trying to do all this work <laughs> to disengage people from the the stereotypes that they have, whether it's the um, and and uh, it's hard to talk about without giving a spoiler because, as Agatha Christie says, nobody is as they seem. And I think that's kind of the theme that runs throughout the novel is to sort of trip people up with their assumptions. Nobody is. And 
And and but even the anthropologists aren't as they seem because no, you're, you're giving us that's what those field <laughs> notes are doing because and we think yeah we so and semantics there I'm trying to remember still not giving anything away it's somewhere in your book and I hear it all the time when someone is describing open space mm-hmm. and or unknown space and they always they say. There was nothing there before. <laughs> so right. unless there's a subdivision squat on there, or there's a high rise, there's some some structure. There wasn't anything there before. Dis, just disabusing of any kind. There's nothing underneath the surface that might have relics of people that had occupied it, had, had dwelled dwelled there before. See, I, there's a semantic problem. Right. I don't mean occupied. <laughs> I meant dwelled. Well, I think that's the fun part too of playing around with paleontology is because that just blows all of that up, right? I mean, the whole study of archaeology and paleontology shows us that there's a lot that, that, that comes before. Exactly. Indeed. And then another, a whole tool and a theme in your book is the diorama. Yes. And the diorama is, it's, a, it's for the micro and the macro kind of thing. So we're I so you maybe have already a selection you want to read about the diorama. Well, th- this is a great time, Roxanne. Take it away. <laughs> okay. All right. So this is from the very beginning of the book, so there will be no spoilers. All right. Here we go. She met her death in a pink linen sundress and spotless white apron, the ties of which splayed out alongside her like limbs floating carelessly in a pool of blood. Pink eyeshadow shimmered brilliantly across her half-opened eyes that gazed up at the crystal chandelier, brightly lit in anticipation of dinner guests who would never taste the juicy roast beef still cooking in the shiny red stove. A starched gingham kerchief lay inches from her bashed and bloodied blonde head. Had the kerchief begun the evening around the hostess's neck or the killer's? Alex shone her flashlight around the remains of the picture-perfect mid-century dinner party that never was and wondered if the guests had ever arrived. Had they come and seen the fresh blood that pooled around their hostess's head and left without leaving a single print on the recently polished floors? Who alerted the police? Who called off the dinner party? Did an early arrival kill her with a whack to the back of her head? Showing up early to a dinner party was considered rude in the 1950s. Only a pink suede kitten heel knocked from her tiny, elegant, plastic foot suggested a struggle. A matching pink lipstick outlined the curvature of slight surprise frozen across her lips. Alex studied the starched white napkins that dotted the length of the mahogany table untouched. Long stem glasses stood empty, their bulbous bellies ready to receive the decanted wine still breathing on the sideboard. The lusterware shimmered unblemished. Had the detectives noticed the gingham kerchief that surely began the evening somewhere around the woman's neck? Alex's breath fogged the protective glass screen between her studious gaze and the tiny dead protagonist whose party had gone awry. She backed away from the scene and looked around at the other little houses. She was alone in the gallery and felt as if she had stumbled into a deserted neighborhood on the wrong side of town. Even the guard who had given her a flashlight to view the low-lit exhibit had abandoned her. Alex shivered despite the heat from the humming radiators. She wiped her glasses with her t-shirt and moved to the next miniature murder house. This one had the aura of innocent disarray left by a child called away mid-play. What had the dog found? A treat? A familiar human scent? 
Alex tilted her head to get a better look, but no matter at what angle she held her flashlight or contorted her neck, no matter how close she got, nothing could have afforded her more than a bird's eye view. There was nothing more frustrating for an anthropologist than a museum exhibit without a full narrative. Where was the backstory? Where was the information that would help her make sense of these little dollhouse scenes reduced to an artistic moment frozen in time? Where were the life histories? Who were these people? Why had they been killed and why was she not privy to the information? An anthropologist was no different from a detective and Alex wanted answers. That's how the whole book begins. Yeah. And so and it's sort of, it's the dollhouse is the the micro detail and you're zooming out it's a diorama and then there is the anthropologist work body of work there. So, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is UCI anthropology professor and award-winning author, filmmaker, playwright. She's rolling out a whole new creative enterprise, the Armchair Anthropology Who Done It series. Death in a nutshell is what she read the early the opening part as an excerpt here of her first book in this project. So, let's um I don't know if you wanted to add more about the dollhouse. I mean, there's there's, when we first read, we're not sure, but you, when you say the plastic foot, we go, oh, wait a minute, this isn't real, but it's, it's, but that's what, we're fooled. We're fooled yep. with the kind of laser-like detailed relay of the setting, but it's, like you said, in, if things aren't as they seem. Exactly. In the bird's eye view, that, <laughs> and that keeps coming up, the bird's eye view, the raptors, the hawks, the, the there's lots of them. <laughs> so, you mentioned it's Dyslexia Awareness Month, and you're giving a great deal of insight about dyslexia, about deduction, and there's linear thinking, which is a neurotypical process. But uh, and I'm not giving. I don't want to give any zingers away <laughs> because I want those zingers to be really fresh listeners when you read this book. But there's a lot of neurotypical kind of uh, funny funny kind of references that I, I, I really am saving. It's hard for me not to, <laughs> to bring them out, but uh, inside and uh, points well taken. So about linear thinking and academia that you're talking about, there's a richness in the nonlinear that if we don't have that, and like if, if, we're, if we're not giving dyslexic learners and speakers and readers an opportunity, we may be foreclosing on that kind of nonlinear take. And I'm probably the, the the most circular thinker learner I I could ever know myself. So and I and I can tell that when I'm with linear thinkers. So talk about where what you, we're losing out if it's only linear thinking. We really are losing out. Um, even somebody like Albert Einstein, who was dyslexic, wasn't great at math, but somebody else was able to do that part. Well, his for wife him. helped him <laughs> out. Exactly. Exactly. And she's the like the missing character <laughs> in the, the Einstein. Wife is always the missing no, but she's, character. We yeah. talked about that with the uh, exactly historic fiction novelist yes. that was on this show years oh, ago, and we talked about she did it. She all. did it all. But you know, I think Back it's to him. much more, well, it's much more difficult now because we have such stringent requirements for math. So for example, just from my own life story, I didn't find out I was dyslexic until after my son was diagnosed. You know, I, I found out, you know, in my forties 
But in undergraduate, I had such a hard time with calculus. I just couldn't get past it. And as a result, it brought my grade down and I couldn't get into an advanced poetry class. I wow, wanted, that's irony yeah, wrapped in. Right? Uh, yeah. So it's like, I think we're really, really doing a disservice to people who learn and think differently by making these very difficult requirements or not supporting them in these places. Like assistive technology, we have calculators. We now have spell check. There's no reason for anyone to win a spelling bee, <laughs> you know? Um, there's no reason for people we not do to We do because we want our pageants. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and we need these strange and odd yardsticks or whatever to measure people by. And they're not good measurements. They don't, they, they leave out so much other important, valuable um, ability that that doesn't get measured well in, insight in that yeah the in ability and uh, insight yeah. in that ability that capacity to this day we think of reading as a mark of um, strong in intelligence but there are very very highly intelligent people who cannot decode who, who need to learn it in a different way but that you couldn't clear the math requirement to get to the poetry <laughs> what was that thinking isn't that crazy that's not even linear that's just <laughs> oppressive it is oppressive I even went and met with the professor and I said look the reason my grades are so bad is because of calculus do I really need calculus maybe for iambic pentameter I can do a one two one two I mean <laughs> you know so it's it really um and and even things like the GRE um I scored really high on verbal really low on math so it's a good thing that that other score was able to bring up the overall number. But you know, things we don't we don't think about how much these these gates, um, these boundaries are are keeping out some really important thinking. Another element for our listeners to consider <laughs> with Roxanne here is the theme, the detail of hunting, and photography, mm. and that is. The hunt is on, folks, and photography, there's different kinds of levels of, uh, there's a hierarchy of what kinds of photography, and I want to raise that what I thought about when I was reading this, right from the beginning of these references, because it's wildlife photography, pretty much, I can't, I think that's Yeah, don't give away anything else. <laughs> no, I won't, I'm going to, I'll do you better. So the Edward Curtis work. I thought of that because of how that's so that's a side attraction that that will without giving anything away in the book is how it, they're remarkable works of art right. they're a catalog that is necessary but it's not sufficient to to explain his subjects but he was people are are very grateful for the catalog and I don't I hope everybody's along with us here on uh, Edward Curtis's work of Native American portraits and some of them are out uh, their landscapes as well he was also criticized for heavily producing those images however I think that the production is a way to kind of weight the nobility of the subject so maybe they didn't think that's how they would arrive in the studio to be photographed but he's saying oh he's bringing out all the nobility all the the creases in the face the 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 kinds of wear and uh, the 
the pieces of the costume and all that. So I, I did you were you thinking consciously of Edward Curtis's work when you were I, writing this? I wasn't, but I'm really aware of his work. And I, I think the last time I saw it was at the National Portrait Gallery at the Smithsonian's in D.C. I wasn't, but that's definitely a great example. I, um, you know, so so much of what I was thinking about throughout was context. And, you know, you can have these amazing photographs and in the wrong context, they're highly problematic, but recontextualized, they can be very valuable. And like you said, a, a, a wonderful piece of history that's lost to us. That That's what he was trying to yeah, do. Exactly. I mean, he like ran, he, he, his marriage eroded. He had, he had to keep clamoring around the country for finances from the, the oligarchs at yeah. the time. And so he was determined to capture that. Now the context this is not this yeah. is still it's still we're still working with the book but okay. taking this off ramp is <laughs> the context was though that he was never he was permitted a lot of access but apparently he could not get access to what I think it was called the rain dance I, I mm -hmm. didn't look mm -hmm. it up I've got the book that about that was it the man who chased stars or yes. gay star so he didn't have access to everything because that would have sort of uh, Un, it would have interfered with the it's sacred, it's sacred. turf. Yeah. So that context is, um, you know, it's the context is where Edward Curtis was invited to be present. Sure. But that wasn't exhaustive of the whole indigenous civilization. Right. But it's also the context in which we put those photographs after the fact. So a lot of visual anthropology begins with this notion of preserving the primitive. You know, going in and grabbing um, a, 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 an image of a culture that's, you know, falling away from us and evolving. Well, you know. primitive, you said. That's, that's a semantic. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly, you know, how we, we were taught about it and what, what, what you know, it's, it's, it's a play, right? But the thing is, right now, so many museums are having to recontextualize. Oh, return as well. Yeah, <laughs> return, <laughs> return is really important. And with photographs, and some people believe that their soul was in the photograph, right? So, I mean, photographs are incredibly personal objects. They can be very sacred. And museums need to recontextualize um, a lot of these photographs because they've been put in a power dynamic in exhibits that um, is problematic. And so we're seeing a lot of that right now. So it's kind of an exciting time to to write about museums, to have a mystery that takes place in a museum, because I think they're very dynamic, important places, and they can do incredible good, but they can do a lot of damage. And I think we're at this moment right now where we're trying to hopefully, um, you know, clean up some of the damage and use museums as a space for learning. Le for learning, yeah. right. And it's con it is a contemplative setting, though. So, and yeah. a rare... I place love a rare space to be yeah so that it that sort of the context is reserved uh, it with that thought that it's the pace well, the setting the the mood and all but that also how you learn not everybody learns from a textbook so it's really important to be able to get into a place and see things um, have some dimensionality 3d sensory I was just in Norway and the National Museum there is so accessible they had you know um, pictures with with Braille overlay. Um, they had so much assistive technologies in there, and they had so much wonderful contextualization. I remember taking my son to the um, you know the Museum of um, African American History Museum in Washington DC. DC, and you know at the time he wasn't reading, and there was just so much reading. 
And I think museums really need to think about that too. Not everybody, and you don't have to be dyslexic not to want to stand in front of something and, and, and read for hours. So there has to be a lot of, um, you know, there, there, we have to have the visual medium, the sound medium, and I think museums are starting to catch on to this and things are changing. And part of the reason I wrote the mystery also is because people, a lot of people, a majority of people these days prefer to learn through storytelling. And that's an age old thing, you know, that we lost somewhere along the way. And for me, that's really what drove a lot of this was that I have been raising a reader and a learner who learns best through stories. And I think we're leaving out a lot of the population by not teaching through stories. So I just think that there's so many different ways to, to teach, to reinterpret, to recontextualize, to, um, you know. Which um, is not a pedantic exercise. It's a really, <laughs> it's an honest and it's a caring sort of a, a disposition agenda there. It's I, I, When people hear that, they may sort of like, oh, here's a, oh, an academic. But, <laughs> but it, recontextualizing is so, so much richer than the product in the status quo. Yeah. So I, there are many other elements, and I, I'm withholding a lot of takes about the African American History Museum because <laughs> I'm going to put that aside. Okay. Listeners know I've got lots I would love to say about that, but that off ramp is not going to be on this program. <laughs> we'll do it in another show. So the, another theme is the gift, the gift exchange, and you even put in the potlatch. That was so cool. I, that was one <laughs> thing that stuck with me from my mm. primary education is the potlatch <laughs> in the Pacific Northwest history. Right. We learned about that. Did you learn about that? I didn't take anthropology. As no, a no, high I'm school. talking about prime. I'm talking about for like oh, in my sixth, PhD seventh program? grade. We no. learned about no. We learned about that in no. elementary school. This is part of the reason I wrote this. I didn't get any anthropology until I started a PhD. Okay, okay. That's, there is, there's a flare at the side of the road. So you talk about gifts the, and gift exchange, the spirit in the gift, and the overall calculus of the hierarchy of gift giving. Have at it. Oh, boy. Well, as you're asking these questions, I'm realizing I need to write a study guide for the book, and I do plan on teaching it somehow. Um, but I, so this comes from Marcel Mauss's work. And it's really, you know, there are a lot of clues throughout the murder mystery. Uh, you know, one of the things that anthropologists work with is material culture and objects. And, you know, these objects have history. They have power. Um, they have power relationships within them. They are given. They're, they're taken. They're stolen. They're misplaced. They're, they're put in places they shouldn't be. So objects are a lot of fun to play with, both as an anthropologist and as a mystery writer. And um, without giving anything away, um, it's, it's one of the things that Alex, the main character, really has to use some of her anthropological skills to figure out the significance of different clues um, in material objects. <laughs> um, and there's a lot, you know, about, um, and, and again, I don't want to give away anything that, that happens in the end, but there's a lot um, at play here in terms of economic um, displacement and immigration and power dynamics and relationships that go into how we relate to various material objects. Oh, boy. It's really hard to do a talk on a murder mystery without, <laughs> you know, giving away your whole book. Well, it, it, but no, we can do it. I'm, okay, we'll I'm, do it. Because we'll there's so much this in there. This is my there. first talk on a murder mystery, so... 
Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, my goodness. I'm cutting my teeth here, Claudia. Okay. I'm, I'm going to learn how to do it right here. Okay. Well, that's, that <laughs> is a, a, a nice function the I'm happy to perform. The book literally came out yesterday, so this okay. is it. And yeah. we'll, we'll get at the end. We'll have time to talk about the formats. People can take this, but I, uh, well, it's all about the independent dealerships. We are not dealing with any oligarchic sort of uh, distributors. It's not my, <laughs> it's not how I roll. But I, I'm, the hierarchy of gift giving and potlatches, it's just sort of like, and I, I think what, what I remember learning was the potlatch is that it's like, it never tops off. It's like, it's a, an escalating kind of thing. It's, oh my gosh, the potlatch and tarof. Yes. And you, and tarof comes up in there. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I just felt like, oh my goodness, that's, <laughs> so that's kind of, that's to say it's a very universal kind of a, a hierarchy. One, and one Iranian American friend of me says, it's passive aggressive, tarof. Have you ever <laughs> thought of that? It is and it isn't. I mean, it's it's a way to keep social relations happy and um, a, and not have to be passive aggressive because everyone it's not really passive aggressive because everyone knows what's happening. Not everybody. Well, a non-Iranian yeah. has I am I sweat bullets every <laughs> I know there's a ritual. It comes up and then sometimes it comes up and I'm I didn't expect it to come up. But mostly Iranian so for for people who don't know Tarof is a is a nicety a polite way of, you know, please have dinner with me and the person the the, the person should know that oh it's not really dinner time, or I haven't been invited, so you should know to say no, um, or don't take all of it. Yeah, you, you exactly. Are, you're supposed to take or some of it. Have have everything. Yeah, or 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 here's a shirt. Oh, I love your sweater, Claudia. Oh, here, take it. It's yours. You know. Oh no, no, no. Um, but I think Iranians don't taruf necessarily with non-Iranians. I remember the first time I was in are Iran. Are you sure? I, I, I think it's ingrained. <laughs> they, they try not to. They really do try not to. My aunt, the first time I was in Iran, um, we were, you know, we'd have these big family lunches and she would say, here, Roxanne, please have some more. And I would say, no, thank you. And I would I would be starving by like three o'clock. And she's like, Roxanne, you really don't eat much. And I said, well, I tried to be polite. And she's like, you don't taruf with family. We're having a family lunch. Oh, I you don't? You oh, there's more. a manual. I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, oh, my there's gosh. totally a manual. But, you know, I had to learn that as I went along. I was a little hungry along the way. And also just things like Iranians tell stories instead of like outright, you know, um, like, for example, my my aunt, I would turn off the bathroom light at night. And so the next day I heard this whole story about how she fumbled with a flashlight. And instead of just saying to me, could you leave the light on? <laughs> <laughs> so it's very much a storytelling culture. It's just part of the way that people communicate. Just part. It's, every, it's like <laughs> 85%. So we we kind of got there when we were talking about the diorama, the dollhouse, and, and the, that con sort of that that stratification. There's the nutshell, right? Which ha that's that's another idea and a a frame of reference. There's the dwelling, and uh, I mean the glass case is we're t we've already talked about museums and the glass house, and there that pun is brought in there about what you do and don't do in your glass house. But that's a through line I want you to take up the way you'd like in your oh wow and your uh, bridal your beginning tour of your book. <laughs> 
Well, the whole thing started, I was teaching in the UCDC program. Here's a plug for UCDC, wonderful opportunity for students to go study in Back to back, we talked about last week with Polly Sai. Oh, you did? Wow. Oh, that's why Matt Beckman was on the show. That makes sense. No, no, he was there about presidential schedules and (laughs) and shutdowns. Okay, well, he was in charge of the program. I don't know if he still is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it was, it was a wonderful opportunity um, for the students, but I also had a moment where I went to the Renwick Gallery and I saw the Lee, um, Francis Glesner Lee's Nutshell exhibit, and she had made these amazing dollhouses that, um, and to call them a dollhouse is really, um, you know, they were, they were nutshells. They were these reconstructed crime scenes that are still being used to train detectives. And it was such a brilliant way. And I'm, th- I'm, I'm wondering if she, maybe she was dyslexic because it's such, a, it, it really is truly dyslexic thinking of like, you can't go to the scene and instead of, you know, having me try to describe it or film it, let me give it to you in 3D so that you can move these little dolls around and it's very neorealist. We can decide that maybe somebody was in the kitchen being stabbed when somebody else was upstairs and you can see that happen in kind of real time as you move things around and I saw the show and you know like any academic I filed it away in my brain as something I definitely wanted to explore at some point and then I went to Montana and I was in the Museum of the Rockies and this murder mystery came to me and I thought is a good place to to explore that you know um <laughs> so that's kind of how that non-linear thinking works <laughs> you have these little elements that you kind of store away and then they sort of come together absolutely absolutely and the nutshell and learning and her using that device mm. it gets into the what you bring up in mouse's work too is it do i pronounce it how or ha yeah and it's so it's that essence that mm. so uh, this tool will give a not not just a three but a much richer multi-dimensional rendering of the scene which exactly. can help walk people through yes the, in the whodunit yeah it's pretty cool and what it does too, because they're these reconstructed dolls, you don't have visuals of the actual person, which I don't play around with as much, but I'm thinking about that now and how important that is as well, because then you can't get into the whole sort of subjectivity and get caught up in that. But we're always, we are so conscious of our subjectivity and we are conscious of the anthropologist's subjectivity. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very humbling message for you to convey Intentionally or unintentionally when I tell you how subjective it is. Mm, interesting. I think it's impossible to keep our subjectivity out. And I think that... Back to stereotype. Yeah, and I think the honest thing in anthropology is to admit that our subject is in there. I think it's really important. And the first time I had that aha moment was in making my film, Plastic Flowers. I mm. filmed it myself and I was in this martyrdom museum looking at these casements. Again, museums. I guess I'm a little obsessed with museums. <laughs> And my reflection was in all the glass and I wanted to take it out. And I kept trying to edit my reflection out and it was impossible. And I thought, well, the honest thing is to admit my own history and my own relationship to this situation. And the fact that I was there, of course I was there. I didn't send in a drone. We didn't have drones then to record this. This is my, you know, this is my look at this. It's not a tripod. It's not some camera maker that I sent in or filmmaker camera person. 
you know, this is how I decided to film it. This is what I was looking at. And I need to own up to the fact that I, I curated this. I chose these images, you know, um, and and I chose these images based on a history that I have with this place. Whether that history is just having read a book at Columbia University as a non-Iranian, which I could have, or having been born there, you know? So I really felt like it was important. There's a lot of, you know, literature about the native anthropologist and what that means, but there isn't a lot about the, the person who's both native and non-native, which I was because I had left Iran and went back for all intent and purposes as this PhD student from Columbia. So I really needed to work that out. And I think it was more honest to do that, you know, than you know not. what that native non-native where you're educated you know this just makes me drool to think about whether i could have ever <laughs> a pie in the sky interview have you and masha Gessen talking about oh, transversing god i would love that transversing where you're educated what you're observing and all that i that relate would, to a lot of what she writes yeah that would be amazing <laughs> well maybe i don't know she was here in, in the flesh about oh, i don't know you. but uh, i don't think they treated her like a goddess like they sh they could have here but <laughs> but that is uh, them I'm yes, sorry. I was about I, to I correct up you, on, but I didn't. But that's I'm sure. going to make those mistakes. That's just yeah, and it's okay. I, I think that, you know. Speaking of which, I think um, it's really important to be forgiving, and um, I was good grief. Yes, no, but that's a very freighted though process too. It is because that's that's a uh, yeah. It uh, often well, it often falls on the shoulders of the people who are are that have to accept <laughs> yeah, it exactly. Exactly. But it's a huge, um, it's a huge privilege to be able to do that. And I think yes. that we're not going to have peace unless in the world, <laughs> unless we allow some humanity in to places. But anyway, but with that is a I, I that is to say, though, I think they are Masha Gessen is too busy, but we yes. could always I can but I found though people I'm I'm in the process I'm putting together a lot of people they may do their work maybe they'll come back to me and let me do the get in on they're doing their work so I I I'm not going to be <laughs> det uh, det Don't yeah, let I, go of that one <laughs> I I will bring that through so for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Roxanne Varzi, anthropology professor here at UCI, and we're talking about her newest creative enterprise is Armchair Anthropology Whodunit series, Death in a Nutshell. I'm going to let her and her other interviews talk about why are you, what is the reason you're doing this? Because we're just letting it come out through <laughs> the process of taking this apart. So I, you've already read a passage. I don't know. I, I don't think we have time for any other passages unless somebody just must. No. Okay. Uh -oh. I'll let the readers so read it. So I want to find out from you your, what the anthropologist relationship is to documentarians and we have a mm. fresh documentary out <laughs> by the complicated with a uh, complicated relationship with history ken burns and i don't know if you want to say anything about that relationship anthropologists have with documentarians because well, they are so so choosing the context well i think you know it's it's not just the medium of film i think it's the relationship that anthropologists have with journalists with documentarians, with um, essayists. I think that the major difference is an anthropologist spends time and they spend a lot of time. So as we are training to go into the field, we're learning the language. We're learning the history of the place. We are learning the contemporary you know, problems of the place. We have 
all of that hopefully under our belts before we do our PhD exams and are allowed into the field. And then we spend a year to two years hanging out, doing deep, deep hanging out before we produce that book, that film, that photograph. Whereas a documentarian goes in very quickly. It's a bit of a helicopter. Yeah, it is a bit of a helicopter. And they go in very quickly. They often have a team of people. Maybe one person's done some of the research. You know, and they, they also, here's my thing, um, and I can't, you know, nothing is um, across the board on anything, right? They're documentarians that are wonderful. Um, my issue with a lot of it is this idea of storyboarding. And I didn't even storyboard my murder mystery, which was kind of a mistake because halfway through I had index cards everywhere trying to figure out the red herrings and whatever. But I think when you go in and try to make these more professional documentaries, you have a storyboard and you know exactly what you want to get. And an anthropologist goes in with the idea that they don't know anything. I think that you should go in with this idea that even though you've studied all of this, that you don't know what you're going to get. If you know what you're going to get, then don't go don't go you know so if you already have it storyboarded that's a problem I don't think every documentary maker sticks to the storyboard but it kind of um, it narrows your your view and often if you don't have a lot of time you might say oh okay well there's this interesting person over here but they're not on the schedule so I'm not going to and I'm just I'm just speaking from the very limited experience I've had of watching some professional documentary you know makers on the side so I can't speak for all of the documentary makers there's certainly some great ones out there but um, a lot of people I think the difference is time and really being able to follow an idea or a lead or a question like you see something and and that's what I like about the whole detective genre you see something and you follow it and this is just dyslexia I'm going to bring in dyslexia there's this amazing gift of diffused attention where you can pay attention and it seems um, counterintuitive to things like ADHD but you can hyper focus but you can also pay attention to a couple different things at once and so you're not honing in on what you think you already know or what you already want to get. You're able to kind of like go down a rabbit hole. And I talk a little bit about this. Um, there's a wonderful uh, researcher, Helen Taylor in the UK, and she writes about complementary um, evolution and about people who you know, move around and find the food in different places. I won't get into it because it's very complicated, but for people different who are interested, yeah, different yeah. interview. But that's... But that's, that's the process, though. Yeah, that's the process. And Brock and Fernette Aid, who wrote The Dyslexic Advantage, they write a lot about these amazing skills. And I think that that's one of the things that you kind of, and, and, and there are people like Chris Arnold in the UK who want to teach people how to think like a dyslexic. And I think those are the kind of nonlinear skills that you kind of need as an anthropologist to go down these rabbit holes. And I think a lot of good anthropologists have those nonlinear skills where they're willing to go off the script and follow these leads, these clues, these things that pique their interest. And, you know, oftentimes that's when you, you get the best stuff, you know. I want to go back. You just strung a lot of really good things there. I want to go back to the whiteboarding and how Ken Burns' projects roll. And I remember when his first series on the Civil War came out. And he was doing his dog and pony. I mean, he was in mm -hmm. real life. at a, He gave a talk in... Uh, Western Massachusetts. I saw him there in person, and he actually made it very clear that originally he had planned to do a military history, a ah. sequence of battles and that kind of thing. 
real shiny, that, I'll say. <laughs> and it was because of the black scholars he had brought on the uh. project. They said, oh, no, no, no. This is about emancipation, dude. Right. And he completely changed the whiteboard. Well, see, there you go. But, but it was still <laughs> Ken Burns doing yeah. it. Not not some uh, right. one of his black scholars that was doing it. So, but that that uh, at least was the. But uh, that's what th needs to happen if you're going to do something well. That's what needs to happen. So let's talk about the um, who's your reader? Who who ah. are you writing to? Because well, I, initially I was writing just for fun, <laughs> and then um, it was really you know I think. I think the past 10 years of homeschooling, you know, my son and, and, and teaching him, I think he's, he's always sort of been my initial reader. He's precocious. So um, I think I really, for me, what I really wanted to do was to entertain and educate at the same time. My reader is somebody who's interested in anthropology. The person on the airplane who, when I tell them I'm an anthropologist, says, that was my favorite class in college, but I didn't learn about it until it was too late and I was already majoring in something else. I think we need to introduce anthropology earlier than college. I think... How early? Let's say... High school. I would say AP. You know, I Why would not say, something really subversive earlier, though? Well, you know, my, I mean, it my, could be called something else. 14 and yeah. he, he, he can handle this. You know? And this is why I also I don't believe in writing down to an audience because of age or whatever. I, I think the field notes can be skipped and you can still read the mystery and enjoy it and get no, something I, out I, of it. Maybe they can be skipped, but it, it lets us put you and put the anthropologist in that glass case. And we're looking at what no, your absolutely. assumptions are. They, they make the book very different, but I didn't write it with the field notes to begin with. So if oh, somebody okay. doesn't want to go that deep, they don't have to. But what I eventually, and part of it was because I was going to work with the press that, that works with twice exceptional learners, gifted, um, dyslexia, autism spectrum, ADHD. And initially they were really happy just to have the mystery, but I was thinking for a long time that I wanted to write these classes that I teach into a curricular form that, that, you know, high school students could get into. And then the pandemic really made me realize how much we need anthropology, how much number crunching isn't going to do it. You need to understand why people don't want a mask or why they don't want to get a vaccine or, you know, there are just so many deep ways that anthropologists can get at things. And I think we can all think like anthropologists, you know, and I think that's really important, even if it's just one murder mystery you've read that's opened up your eyes to seeing like reading visuals differently or, um, you know, just thinking about stereotypes, something as simple as that or not as simple, but, you know, just being introduced to that. So I'm going to do a talk at Hunter High School in New York City. They're my audience, you know, bright um, high school students who are interested in murder mysteries and exploring something that they're not getting access to right now. So I have an idea. Oh. Now, so you you said on the way in on the way before we went <laughs> on air that you're you've already what sixty pages into the next in the series. Yes. So I have um, I'm going to pitch one little idea here Ooh, for here while go. everybody's okay. listening to us is the um, <laughs> banned books banned anthro yes. professor. Oh, <laughs> you want me banned already? No, 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 because faculty because. That it came to my mind because the new governor of Louisiana mm. is going after academics. Oh, well. <laughs> and it was a <laughs> primary, but because he cleared a simple majority, it was the general election. Landry is in. He's the governor of Louisiana, and he has levers to deal with banning 
uh, putting a lot of pressure on academics. So it's going to be really hard. And yes. it's, so the band book and the band anth anthroprof or the band academic, uh, somewhere there's that. And you have fodder in Huntington Beach and you've yeah. got Florida, the whole system, what that's so there, there's a lot That's, of glass yeah. cases. No, absolutely. And I'm still writing plays, and that might be the next play. So we'll see. Oh, and this does. That, this genre, <laughs> who done it's there is a bit of a play to the way the dialogue is set up. Absolutely. And I just went to see Agatha Christie's Mousetrap, which was a bit of a pilgrimage for me. She's an amazing, she was, she was dyslexic as well. And, you know, her writing, somebody told me this. Somebody said, you know, the reason that you're dialogue is so prominent in the book is because you're dyslexic and I never thought about it huh, before but really? Agatha Christie's books every single one of them are so easy to um, put in the context of a play or a movie and I think that's part of the reason they're so popular is because she is a natural playwright as, as well as being a mystery writer so I think it, it makes complete sense to me to go in between these two genres complete sense and complete is a that's a, a sweeping modifier i can't believe we're using that but it is a, utterly utterly it is well uh quickly where people can get a hold of the book and the formats ah well as they say where books are sold though it might take a, another week for it to be up at some of the indie places but i'm hoping book culture in new york city will have some of the first books and otherwise it's on all the e-readers and if you are getting it on Kindle and other e-readers, you can change it to a dyslexic font. So that's really important to me. And the next project is to get it out on audio in about a month. Roxanne, it's been such a pleasure. And I, I learned so much from the read and I had so many different reactions and senses uh, sensibilities coming up there uh, i really appreciate the chance that we got thank to talk you, about that Claudia. day thanks for coming all the way thanks to the studio oh yes <laughs> my guest was roxanne varzi uci anthropology professor and award-winning author filmmaker and playwright and her book is called death in a nutshell it's in the armchair anthropology whodunit series the first book in this project that's my wrap Next week, I've invited some UCI Armenian Student Association affiliates. Geopolitics run right through campus, folks. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Mm -hmm.